Joy is our subject during Eastertide as a community. And joy is not just some obscure attribute, but it is a central and critical reality for the people of God. Paul says that the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then actually joy is the second fruit of the Spirit that's mentioned in Galatians 5, second only to love, actually. So joy is actually a very big deal for us as God's people, and it's a key mark of the people of God. I've said this numerous times in the last couple of weeks, but it's really my desire that Church of the Cross would be marked, and my own life would be marked, and your life would be marked by uh, and known by joy, the, real, the reality of joy that, that we have the privilege of having in Christ. I want the city of Boston around us, a city that is very serious and um, filled with lots of ambition and idealism and mind and body numbing effort and focus, which some of you probably know far too well about this time of year. Um, I want this city to be confronted with the reality of a divine joy in the people of God and to say something like this, these people are overflowing with life and with joy. How does that work? Is it really real? Real? And how in the world can I get in on that in my life? That's what I'd love for the, the city around us to see in, in the body, to see in our lives. At the end of the day, it's actually joy that people are seeking through all of their seriousness and all of their effort. Pascal, the 17th century philosopher, mathematician, and theologian who died at the age of 39, you, never, you know, wonder what else he would have done, um, he said it well when he said, the will never takes the least step except to that end. That is the end of joy. So I long for the city to see in us, the people of God, the reality and the fullness of true joy that is only the gift of God and from God. Now, most of us have room to grow in this area as people. Most of us have quite a bit of room, and that's why we're taking some time to look at the subject together during Eastertide. It's not that we want to come away with just a better mental understanding of joy, but instead, as a people, we really want to grow in the reality of joy, in the light of the resurrection, and become a people of joy. So, to that end, last week we saw in the Psalms, uh, in Psalm 92, the psalmist um, had this reflection upon the great works of God that caused joy to erupt in his heart and in his life. Works that were not external to his life, like something over here that he just sort of read about, but works that were central to his identity. In other words, it's not the accomplishments and or the failures in our own little stories that determine our joy as the people of God, but rather it's the works of God in the far bigger story into which we have been brought by our faith and our baptism. We've been grafted into this story of Christ dying and rising again. A story in which God has done great things, great things for his people, primarily the death and resurrection of Jesus, which are a tremendous gift to us as his people and not dependent upon us in any way, shape, or form. We're reminded of that each week as we come to worship together like this. And we come each week to the Lord's table. He, the crucified and risen Christ, feeds us and sustains us. He is our life. He makes us glad and that gives us joy. <clears throat> and so our job, our vocation as Christians is to stay rooted in this story of death and resurrection. To keep the feast, the celebration of joy and to savor and to celebrate the wonderful things that God has done for us, like forgiveness of our sins, like the rescue from bondage to sin and death. 
and new life that he's given to us already in his spirit. So this is our job, our task, is to celebrate these things day in and day out as the people of God. But as we stay rooted in this story, we realize that there's something more than just what God has done already that actually fuels our joy as his people in the present day. Something that's quite inherent in the work of God that he's done, that we've celebrated in Holy Week and Easter, the the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, And that is simply the eager anticipation of what God will do one day. So if if you will, last week we were thinking about the mighty works of God that he had done. Tonight I want to just point our attention to the fact of joy arising out of an anticipation, an eager anticipation of what God will do in his world. So Romans 12.12 is our text for this evening, and actually just one part of it, where Paul exhorts the church to rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. That's the exhortation. That's the call. Rejoice in hope, people of God. Elsewhere in Romans, Paul writes, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This same kind of idea being communicated there. There it's a a confident celebration and joy in what God is going to bring about. The word in Romans 5 where that comes from is actually boast. We boast in hope of the glory of God. It's It's a confidence. It's a glorying in this thing that God is going to bring about, his promised future. Or again in chapter 15 verse 13 of Romans, he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. There again, hope and joy are linked together along with peace. Hope is critical to joy. This destination, this glorious future that is yours and that is mine as people in Christ, where this story is headed is a cause for joy in our lives in the present day. It fuels joy. And I want to put to you that without clarity about this hope, as God's people, without clarity about this hope, that our lives will be diminished in joy. They'll be diminished in joy in the present day. From the earliest time, Christians, when they celebrated the realities of Easter, of the fact that Christ rose from the dead, this was not merely a celebration of what their great God had done in the past in raising Jesus bodily from the dead. But the celebration of Easter was always to affirm and anticipate the glorious future, the new age, that the resurrection signifies unambiguously that God would bring about. So this past event, Jesus rising from the dead, points to a future reality that the new age, the age of resurrection, will come to pass. That the new world where God would reign, where evil would be completely undone, where humans would be restored to their place in creation in a dignified sense, in a glorious sense, as God's vice regents ruling over all of the world, that all of this would come about and take place. This is what the earliest celebrations of Easter pointed to. So Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. Well, the first fruits are this beginning of the harvest that is brought in um, to the homestead or to the city that, that represents the rest of the harvest that is to come. So what we celebrate in the first fruits in Easter says that there will be a a fuller harvest to come. Christ has been raised. Therefore, all will rise. That's Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. And then the end will come when God will be all in all. Or as Isaiah says, and the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the future to which the 
actual resurrection of Jesus points us as the people of God. That's the new world. The new age. It will be an age of splendor and an age of glory. An age where there will be no pain and no cancer and no disorders and no addictions. Where violence will not have a place. Where human beings, again, will be restored. That's the hope of the glory of God. Paul says it in Colossians 1. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It'll be an age of beauty, an age of justice, where everything that is wrong in the world is set to right. Now, I don't know what you're facing in your life as you walk in here tonight, but I'm sure that many of you are facing many serious things, many challenging and troubling things. But I do know with great confidence, because of the resurrection of Jesus, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that God's purposes will prevail in your life and in my life and in the world around us. And that everything will be made right again one day. All will actually be well. The world that hurts us, the world that disappoints us, the world that lets us down is going to be so infused by the grace and the power of God that everything will be made new. That you and I will be made new. And to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus for the earliest Christians was also to affirm the sure and certain reality that this process of God's renewal of all things had begun. It had been let loose like a power in the world and it was going to gain ground and gain ground until finally one day everything would be completed and consummated by the power of God. And the same is true for us today as we celebrate the resurrection. Easter points us to that end, to that age that we long for. Now imagine a destitute refugee family that longed for a home while they were dwelling in in city-provided shelters or at best or maybe under an overpass at worst. And then imagine one day they're picked up by a cab sent to them by an anonymous benefactor and driven to a vacant lot in the city somewhere which has loads of construction equipment on it. And as they get out of the car, they're given a note and it says, welcome to your new home. And they look out on this lot and they see a foundation has been laid for a home. They're ecstatic when they see this reality of a home, something that they'd always longed for. But they're not just ecstatic about seeing a foundation because a foundation in and of itself is wonderful, but it points to something else, something that's coming. It points to the house that's going to stand on top of it and that will be completed. They will be safe, warm, and well-fed. The foundation being there actually gives them the assurance that this promise that they've just read about will actually come to pass. Or imagine, or maybe you've been a newlywed couple on your wedding day when you've enjoyed the celebration of the service and worship and the wedding and the feast and the friends and the family who are all around and the joy of that moment, knowing that actually you've got in front of you a honeymoon to go and to enjoy. That everything that you've just gone through suggests that this is going to happen very soon and not just a honeymoon, but a life to live together in this beautiful thing of love for the rest of your lives. The joy of the wedding day is actually enhanced and increased by the fact of looking forward to the reality that it points to, that you're now one, and that you'll go and you'll live your life together beginning with this celebration in the honeymoon. Well, this is our situation as the people of God. We proclaim Christ has died, Christ is risen, and that's the foundation, or that's the wedding ceremony itself. But then we go on to say, don't we, each week, Christ will come again. Christ will come again. And that is the promise of the rest of the house or the looking forward to the honeymoon or life together forever. That's what what we're looking forward to, that the resurrection signifies and points us to. 
And it's the assuredness of this promise, which is our hope as the people of God. That is to fuel real and lasting joy in your life and in my life today and every day. That's what Paul's exhorting the church in Rome to do. To rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. It's not a one-time action either. It's an ongoing, repeated process of rejoicing. And what this means here, kind of bring it down to reality, is that, that as you and I pay our bills tomorrow or this week, as we labor day after day in our jobs, in the vocations that God may have called us to, as we clean up our homes, as we host neighborhood groups or attend neighborhood groups, as we finish exams, and God bless those of you who are going through that in the next couple of weeks, um, with strength and a sharp mind, um, as we eat dinner, as we plan for the future, on and on and on, we can have true joy as the people of God. Not only in all that God has done already, but especially, as we're looking at tonight, in all that God will assuredly do, all that actually will be, all that we're looking forward to. So my question to you simply is, do you know that kind of joy in your life? Does that future actually animate and fuel your present day existence and reality? You know, as a Christian, our ultimate hope, if that's what you would claim to be as a Christian, our ultimate hope is not in having success in a particular endeavor that we take up in this life. Whether that be graduate school or a new relationship or our kids maturing and growing up to be responsible and godly adults or a new exercise plan to get in shape and on and on and on. Our ultimate hope resides in the God of resurrection. The God who is making all things new independently of you and of me and also through us as well. The God who's already defeated the powers of this age and who is going to finish the job and make everything right by ushering in the new age without a doubt. Our true joy, the joy that belongs to us as God's people is diminished when we lose this God-directed focus and begin to focus on those endeavors around us, whatever they may be. And I want to say, I want to clearly say that what I'm not saying is that to concentrate or that it's wrong for us to concentrate and to focus upon the various tasks and vocations that God has given to us as his people in this world today right now. The old adage that you're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good should never be true, ever, about the people of God. In fact, the reality of resurrection And the focus upon God's ultimate purposes for the world, the ultimate end of all things being made new, actually helps us to take up these endeavors with a greater level of seriousness and commitment and vigor and energy and strength than we ever would have before. That's the logic of the resurrection. We don't have time to tease that out tonight, but that's the logic of the resurrection. But here's the point. When they become the focus of our lives in an unhealthy way, and that's usually... When this happens, when, when either our identity or our, sec- our sense of security or our sense of fulfillment is pegged, like directly pegged to a particular outcome of one of these endeavors that we've taken up in our life, probably taken it up in Jesus' name. When it's pegged to these things which are never secure and certain, we don't know what those endeavors are going to lead to. None of us do then ultimately our joy is very, very insecure, uncertain, and tentative at best. And our joy in the ultimate horizon of our lives, which is God's promised, certain, and sure future, is diminished. 
So when we do this, in this case, we actually set aside our primary identity as the resurrection people of God, the new people of God, and we take upon ourselves an identity that's not primary, and we make it primary. We, we step out of the controlling narrative that is signified in our baptism of dying and rising with Christ. And we, we step into the smaller narrative, which is not unimportant to God or to us or to the world. But we take upon it, we, we put upon it a kind of stress and emphasis that it cannot bear. And all of a sudden, we diminish in joy. You know what I'm talking about? I know what I'm talking about. We do this all of the time where we step out of this great story into something else and it begins to diminish. We, we live as those who kind of um, deny the family inheritance. We step away from the feast. So let me ask you this question. What, what is it that's grabbed your focus right now in your life? What is it that has, has grabbed your attention in such a way that it's, it's trying to pull you out of this narrative that ends in the glorious day of, of the new heavens and the new earth and that has you focused and fearful and anxious in living your life today? There's kind of two ways to think about this, actually. One, on the one hand, um, for many of us who have grown up with abundant opportunity, there is so much that we could attain in this world. We're told all the time from a young age, look, you can become, you can become so great and, and we're encouraged by our parents and our friends and then our colleagues and, or our classmates to, to exercise this, this great effort and energy and there's opportunity that abounds, but it's this abundant opportunity that begins to consume us and to detract from the reality of the story that we've been grafted into in Christ. Or on the flip side, if we've grown up in a position of very little opportunity, sometimes it can be that we get so consumed by the fact that we don't have access to those places or those things that the world tells us we need to have in order to become somebody who's significant or important or whatever it might be. And wherever you, you are on that scale, either in the, in the plentiful opportunity or the diminished opportunity camp, the resurrection says to both of those camps, no, this is a wrong way to live. This is a wrong place to put your, your, your person into, to put weight upon. Because in Christ you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Because in Christ those either excess of opportunities or, or um, a lack of opportunities don't define you anymore. In fact, you've died to those things such that they no longer control you, they no longer constrain you, they no longer constrict you, and you've been brought into a world with Christ that is full of opportunity to love and be loved, to serve and be served, to know true life in Him for the rest of your days. And into a world and into a life that the future is not in any way at all uncertain or insecure. There is nothing in the world that can happen to you tonight or tomorrow or this week or next week or next month or next year. There's nothing that you can do this week or next week or next month or next year. There's nothing that that you can't do. There's nothing that you can fail at either next week or next year that diminishes the reality of the hope that God has given to you and to me in Jesus that one day we will rise again with Him and we will know the glory of the sons and daughters of God to be reigning with Him in a new heavens and a new earth. And this is certain and this is secure and it's a reflection upon this that leads us as the people of God to an abundant 
an overflowing, an unceasing fountain of joy that comes up from within us and out of us into our lives today and tomorrow, into those vocations, into those things that cause us fear and anxiety, into those places of frustration and discomfort, into those great trials and sufferings and temptations. We bring the certainty of the future with God into this present day. And that breeds joy. And that's what we are reminded of. That's why we come back out of these smaller narratives that we struggle in every day of every week and we come back to this place together to be re-strengthened and reminded to come to the table to participate with one another in the worship of our Almighty God who will come again and make everything right. Okay, this isn't just theoretical. This is real. This happens. This is ours as God's people. Let's pray. Let's ask God, come and make it so. Amen.